0: This episode is brought to you in special part thanks to our awesome partners over at Ice Barrel. If you're like me, you want to get the absolute most you can out of your fitness and out of what it is that you're doing in life. I like to make sure that I'm recovering well and prepped for hard workouts. I like to make sure that my cognition is sharp, and I like to make sure that I'm doing what I can to maintain my long term health. And cold water immersion is a phenomenal tool I use. And I've used for a while to help me do this. Cold water immersion or taking ice baths is a great way to improve your recovery and performance. Just a few short sessions a week can really make a difference in how you recover. It can increase and improve your heart rate variability. It can enhance performance, it improves mood and brain function. It also provides an awesome boost of energy and focus because when you hop in an ice bath and you get this amazing vasoconstriction effect and your body starts releasing epinephrine and norepinephrine, it kind of lets you re-enter the world awake, energized, excited, and enthused. And I would much rather take an ice bath in the mid-afternoon, especially if I had a hard training session in the morning, than consume more caffeine. Ice Barrel allows me to do this in a super sleek, aesthetically pleasing pattern packaging. It's a beautiful barrel that comes with a matching lid for keeping the ice cold and water inside clean, a nice step-up stool, a cover. It's portable and durable, and it comes in a beautiful matte black and a gorgeous tan. I have the matte black out on my patio, and I absolutely love the way it looks with the fencing I have around the yard, but you can put this inside, outside, on the front porch, on the back porch, in the side yard. It's quite portable. It's very durable. Like I said, the design is super, super sleek, and it's very easy to drain to make sure that you are only getting in to cold, clean water designed to help you improve your performance, improve your recovery, enhance the way your brain feels and functions throughout the day. This is an amazing one-time cost tool that once you have it, you use it a couple times a week. It is one of the best investments you can make in your health. And again, if you want to improve your cognition and performance and you have those midday lulls, or you want to be more present for your family or for your friends when you get off of work and you don't want to caffeinate, temperature modulation like ice baths or cold exposure or sauna, heat exposure. Can be really valuable for increasing that subjective sense of well being and bringing you back to a place of alertness in a really chaotic world. It's also great for just cultivating resilience. I find I'm much tougher. Again, this is a more anecdotal thing, but I find that I am much tougher, ready to face the day's tasks when I am consistently exposing myself to the elements. Call it bromeopathy, call it anecdote, but I will tell you one thing is for sure cold water immersion has made a huge difference for my health and well being and just a few short sessions a week. And Ice Barrel is the sleekest, best looking, cleanest and most affordable way to do it reliably. You can head over to icebarrel.com slash Danny to take advantage of their 100% satisfaction guaranteed with again, a 30 day money back guarantee and save 125 bucks on your Ice Barrel using the promo code Danny. So again, icebarrel.com slash Danny and check out using the promo code Danny to save 125 bucks. Welcome in, everybody, to another episode of the Dynamic Dialogue Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Matranga, and in today's episode, we are joined by my good friend and now multi-time guest on the show, Dr. Kyle Gillette. Dr. Gillette is a medical doctor who specializes in what I would describe as a holistic, well-rounded approach to medicine. He's not anti-pharmaceutical. He's not overly pro-pharmaceutical. He's somebody that I would describe as being very much in the middle, somebody who champions both supplemental, lifestyle, exercise, and nutritional interventions. And today we talk specifically about a huge component of his practice, which is leading with the seven pillars of health, diet, exercise, sleep, stress, sunlight, spiritual, and social Health. All of these things are integral to the health of the human being and the well-being of the human being across the lifespan. We want a long health span as well as a long lifespan. And you need to do something to hit on each of these things to really thrive as a human. Dr. Gillette and I discuss each and every one of these in detail, and for those of you who are hoping to help friends, family, loved ones live healthier lives, especially through the holidays, this is a must-listen. For coaches out there who are looking to make their clients' lives better through not just diet and exercise, but other health-promoting behaviors, this is a must-listen, perhaps my favorite interview to date. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode with Dr. Gillette. Dr. Gillette, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Uh, For those of you who aren't aware, Dr. Gillette and I recorded an episode specifically about hormonal health, uh, female hormonal health, female physiology about six months ago. And it's one of the most downloaded episodes that we have done uh, on the podcast because so many of you are invested specifically in how your physiology can impact your performance and your body composition. But after listening to a couple of uh, guest spots, Dr. Gillette's done on other podcasts and listening to his podcast, which I believe is new, we'll talk about that a little bit too. I'd love to hear about that. Um, I, I loved the way he framed and kind of wrapped the idea that there are seven essential pillars to human health. And I think that going specific and going into the nitty gritty is really, really valuable, but things that are very general uh, and apply broadly like this are so, so important for somebody like myself, who's very much on a mission to help as many people as possible live healthier. And so I I can't wait to talk to you about this, man. And congratulations on the new clinic and the new pod.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I love talking about these topics because I truly believe that food is medicine and exercise is medicine. And these lifestyle interventions are more powerful than any medication or supplement.
0: Yeah. And so like and in your practice as a medical doctor, right? Like, and and this is a big thing, uh, you know, is qualifying expertise. And, and, you know, in the social media space, things can get a little hairy and it's hard to identify who really is and who really isn't a Reputable source of health information, and I can't think of too many people who are better positioned than somebody who works in medicine with people each and every day uh, to improve their health and and i've got to assume and I, I have seven pillars down here that these seven pillars of health kind of became more and more clear to you as you started practicing medicine, but maybe even before you started practicing maybe when you were in med school, how did each of these uh sunlight, diet, exercise, stress, sleep, spiritual and social health, how did these come to you and stand out to you as, you know, I'm a physician, I need to help people live a healthier life, but I cannot do that with traditional medical interventions and traditional Western pharmaceutical interventions
1: alone. Yeah, a lot of the, uh, I guess, wisdom that I've gleaned along the way is from seeing what the common denominator is with people that have very good health. Mm. because there's this paradox of people that go to the doctor all the time are on dozens of medications, and they're some of the least healthy people, and they have the shortest health spans, even if their lifespan is decent. Sure. And then a lot of people don't go to the doctor at all, Mm. and they are particularly healthy. Now we can, of course, dive into that more later, but you look for the common denominators and exercise and diet are certainly two that stand out that a lot of people are aware of, but there's other interventions that people need to think about as well.
0: And so like, I I would say as a fitness coach and fitness professional, it's very clear to me how important diet and exercise are both as interventions for improving long-term health, improving body composition, improving mental health. I I see it all the time, but when we talk about benchmarks for diet and exercise for general population health as a physician, let's start with exercise. Um, What kind of recommendations are you making for patients who maybe aren't particularly interested or don't particularly enjoy something like resistance training or going on a run? You know, I feel that I'm fortunate having grown up and having played a lot of sports. I have a proclivity for challenging and enjoying challenging myself physically. And we're moving further away from that as a population. Many people are more sedentary. Uh, Children spend more time with technology. They play less. So, you know, developing a love and cultivating a love for exercise is challenging. And for people who aren't particularly, you know, in love with it, how do you as a physician not only encourage it, but also get some traction there?
1: Yeah. The natural human condition is to be moving or standing most of the time. I am standing at a standing desk as I talk to you here. Heck yeah. Uh, And I know a lot of people have treadmill desks or even like a, a Peloton desk as well. So um humans are innovating and figuring out how to get back to a more natural condition With that being said I am inside currently so I'm not outside um, but a lot of the different interventions that I recommend I just write as a prescription like anything else so I have prescription pads for nutrition for diet um, and one for general lifestyle in general and I am in the process of digitizing these prescription pads cool but Just like you would recommend, say, a medication or a supplement, I write down and circle uh, some of the interventions. And um, it's not just calories in and calories out and micronutrients, macronutrients, of course. Sure. So there's actionable tips. For example, if someone's attempting to optimize their body composition or lose body fat, then I might choose uh, the first section has like six different options where number of meals per day is one of them. Calories is another one of them. Amount of protein per day is another one of them. Another carbs per day is another one of them. Eating speed is another one of them. So there's a lot of different, um, depending on the individual, just like you might choose a different medication for someone, which might work better, depending on someone's genetics and habits, you can choose a different intervention.
0: I like that. And you hit on something interesting, which is eating speed. And I I think most people are aware that if you want to lose body fat, you know, I guess you probably eat less overall calories And I should probably optimize for more food that's protein rich and satiating. But what degree to what degree does eating speed influence the amount that people eat? Because this is something that psychologically I work with a lot, particularly with clients who compete or need to get very, very lean for a competition. And you need to pull out all the stops. But eating speed does have a pretty substantial influence on how much we eat, huh?
1: yeah i think it's particularly clear in the case of say a new mom or a new dad or a pediatric patient and they feel like they have less time so they need to eat particularly fast and when that's the case you can certainly tend to overconsume calorically dense but not necessarily nutrient dense foods it's no secret that um, you know doctors are people too and I struggle with all the same issues. For example, after my first child, um, I certainly gained too much body fat, probably uh, thirty, maybe maybe even forty pounds of excess body fat. Wow. And that was one of the interventions that I felt particularly helpful, along with eliminating all liquid calories. Yeah, that's that was a big really one, one thing for me.
0: That's a big one. I actually just made a post about that this morning that if I could recommend one behavior for body fat reduction, Ah, uh, for the average American, uh, based on how people typically eat, it wouldn't be the elimination of a particular macronutrient or a particular food classification. It would be the elimination of liquid calories. I'm sure you see a lot in your practice uh, people overconsuming liquid calories. And what? And when we talk about changes people can make for their health, there's two types of, or really three types of. Calorically laden beverages that people have a, a tendency to overconsume. All of which I think can be independently harmful in excess. The first is overly sugary sodas or beverages, overly caffeinated, oftentimes overly sugared coffee or energy drinks, and then of course alcohol. And and did you eliminate all three? Do you have patients eliminate any of these three? Like, are there secondary? health markers when you remove these calorically laden beverages besides body fat reduction, because I think alcohol, caffeine, and sugar uh, at high amounts can all be pretty deleterious
1: to your health. I eliminated all three with the exception of one to two standard alcoholic beverages. So not a 500 milliliter glass of wine, but actual standard drink Okay, um, in general is one shot of eighty proof or forty percent liquor, one glass of um, a wine. I think it's normally like seven percent. So obviously, wines are anywhere from like six to fifteen percent. Yeah, which um, uh, that's a whole another story. But that's not really like a a fifteen percent proof wine is not necessarily like really natural. Sure. In the context historical context of making wine, um, but anyway, uh, as far as like what what I recommend to patients is usually something similar. If that individual Drinks alcohol. Oh, and the other caveat to that is only in settings um where it is potentially socially helpful. So alcohol yeah. is not really helpful for like health purposes. Um, you can you can make the argument that it helps with aromatase, but there's other things that do that better. Yeah, um, sure. And then it's um, seven kilocalories per gram, of course, more along yeah. the lines of the nine that fat has compared to the four that protein and carbs have.
0: Yeah. And I, I think we see a lot of justification for, you know. Chronic alcohol consumption. The French paradox is often cited as like, hey, you know, there's look at the French, they drink a ton of red wine and you know, they're so healthy. And and of course, there's ambivalence around the secondary health factors that the French and, and other European countries engage with that allow them to stay so healthy, even with elevated alcohol consumption. But when it comes to nutrition and when it comes to alcohol consumption, I'm I'm hearing one to two standard drinks per week in a social setting is probably where you're going to set the guardrail for not just yourself, but hopefully for patients. Uh, you know, as somebody who works with clients who want to optimize lifestyle performance and body composition, it's really hard to do that with chronic alcohol consumption.
1: Mm -hmm. There's an interesting correlation and it's a fairly strong correlation between endurance athletes, both cyclists and runners and alcohol consumption. Now, uh, they are slightly more likely to be able to get away with it because they burn so many calories Mm -hmm. as a habit that they essentially have room for those empty calories. Sure. And then secondary to that, they also have less aromatization. Now,
0: in in your work, how frequently do you see primary and even secondary health issues arising from uh, chronic alcohol consumption that many people would say is like, I didn't I you know I have a glass of wine a night or two glasses of wine a night like I don't think I'm an alcoholic I don't think I have a drinking problem at, at what level of intake as a physician do you start to see problems from
1: alcohol consumption It's very common but it's usually not only related to alcohol consumption of course, So yeah. two things that I see all the time is difficult with difficulty with weight loss just mm-hmm. due to the calories of alcohol Sure both the calories from alcohol as a macronutrient, and um, often the other carbohydrates that are with it. Sure. The second thing I see all the time is people that start GLP ones like semaglutide, yes. which is certainly in vogue right now. Yes. Alcohol will slow gut peristalsis, and alcohol does the uh, and GLP ones do the same thing. Mm. So it's very common to see vomiting and severe nausea after starting a GLP one. Just because between the the two of those things, your gut is essentially paralyzed or having reverse peristalsis, which is when you vomit.
0: I I have two clients out of the 30 to 40 or so that I work with in person and online who are actively using semaglutide, Um, one of which is remote, one of which is in person, both of which found out about the drug and said, hey, what do you think about this? They said, hey, why not, you know? You've struggled with nutritional and dietary adherence. Your physician signed off on it. I don't have a dog in this fight per se, and I'm you know limited in how much I can help you outside of giving you directives. And both of them cited not only that they did know that you know it affects your appetite, but neither one of them wanted to stop uh, continue drinking. It seemed to kind of nuke any desire they had to drink. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but I, I figure it's a decent segue. But there's some literature emerging around maybe them using some of these GLP 1s to treat alcohol addiction. I don't know if you have an opinion on that or, or if you have an opinion writ large about GLP 1s, but like you said, they're very in vogue. They seem to be beneficial for weight loss and for treating diabetes, probably through weight loss. Um, and now they might even be used to treat addiction. Do you think that this is a classification of drugs that potentially could, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we'll be watching TV and we'll see the law firm ads. If you or someone you love use semaglutide, you know, do, do you think that these could be dangerous in some way? Or, or are you pretty uh, liberal in your prescription of them if you prescribe them at all?
1: I am relatively liberal with GLP 1s for individuals that need it, especially individuals that are just about to develop diabetes that would mm-hmm. essentially have diabetes otherwise, or for individuals that would develop some other severe pathology in that case again going back to the scale the balance of risk to benefit the benefit just outweighs the risk um there's a lot of information and videos that consider glp1's appetite suppressants Mm -hmm. and yes they work on the hypothalamus that orexigenic think of your orexigenic center as your hangry center or your anorexigenic center that's um, you know, same root as anorexia. So sure. that's, you're not hungry, not angry. And yes, they do work on the hypothalamus and the hypothalamus has a lot to do with, um, like addiction and alcohol use. That's why a lot of times we use things like naltrexone. That's also active in the hypothalamus on opioid receptors or well, which is also active in the hypothalamus. It's dopaminergic, mm-hmm. but not to segue too much. It's, there's a lot more, there's other mechanisms of action. So it also has what's called a gustatory response, which when your body produces its own GLP-1 after eating, that's where you get some of the satiety. And it also works on the pancreas, it's called an incretin. And that's where it basically helps you utilize your insulin better and secrete it at better times. Gotcha. So it kind of like potentiates the effect of insulin or helps you secrete insulin. And then it's also active in the periphery on receptors, um, working in both the liver and also uh, throughout your body to uptake glucose. So there's a lot of different actions. One of the, so there's a couple of different black box warnings for it. I've seen a lot of people make videos that say it increases your risk of thyroid cancer. However, I think that is actually the least concerning side effect of GLP-1s like semaglutide because it's specifically medullary thyroid carcinoma, gotcha. which is exceedingly rare and on, really only happens often in specific types of multiple endocrine neoplasia. So I think that's very unlikely to be a class action lawsuit at some day. However, it can cause pancreatitis. Mm. And if you have really high triglycerides, for example, over 500, you could be at risk of pancreatitis. And gotcha. um, that's one issue. The most common issue is biliary pathologies. So an example of this would be you start semaglutide. Let's say you're a 40-year-old female and your BMI is 40. At, uh, a month or two after starting semaglutide, it not only paralyzes your gut, but it paralyzes little tubes that secrete enzymes. It's not uncommon to see someone need their gallbladder removed or to have another problem with the gallbladder or liver after starting. So I think that is, uh, a dark horse for being like a, an unknown side effect in the future. Gotcha.
0: So with, um, just kind of to circle the wagons on nutrition and what people can do from a nutritional standpoint to improve their health. Um, uh, when patients come to you, what are the big rock quick hitter items that you tell them to focus on with their eating behavior? Because, uh, you know, energy density, uh, overall energy intake in the form of calories, a lot of times that's over people's head. They're not even ready for a calorie total. They're not even ready for a grams of protein total. Sometimes they are. Uh, But what are those big rock habits and behaviors that you see to be most effective at helping people live healthier
1: with regards to nutrition? As you mentioned, I do like uh, helping explain or helping raise the food intelligence. Maybe food intelligence isn't a perfect term but it's nutritional literacy, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, it's something that people understand raising the knowledge that each patient has about foods, at least to the level to understand caloric density versus nutrient density. Yeah. That's really smart. I love that. that's, That's a baseline that almost all patients except very young pediatric patients would be able to understand. And in the case of pediatric patients, of course you would have the whole family involved anyway. Um, So that would be the number one thing. The number two thing would be, uh, for most people learning how to skew calories toward earlier in the day, I'm certainly not against intermittent fasting, but if there is a difficult case where, uh, it's been hard for the patient to lose body fat, often you see them eating a large amount of of calories between say 7 PM and midnight. So, um, basically finding a strategy, which often encompasses social health with that too, sure, uh, to where they can consume the majority portion of their calories earlier on in the day.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that honestly just sets you up for better sleep, which can help with willpower. We'll, we'll talk more about sleep in a second, but, um, and a simple prescription that you might make for exercise for somebody who's just trying to get their footing and being like, uh, you know, doc, I know I need to exercise, but I just don't like it. You know, what What can we do for p- patients and, and clients and friends and family who, who we are trying to encourage to exercise? Because this is something that a lot of well-intentioned fitness fanatics who are, you know, I, I would call them missionary in that they really want to other people to experience the benefit of exercise, um, but they have a hard time. Getting traction there. Have you, what what do you have the most luck with?
1: I like to say a movement pastime to last a lifetime. So if you're moving, presumably your heart rate at some point would go over a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, not that you need, not that everybody needs to rigorously track that, but sure. everybody can find a movement pastime that they really like. Occasionally, you can, and this is kind of to play devil's advocate. Yes, you can kind of teach yourself habits to like something. Yes. For example, at one point uh, I uh, didn't like cars anymore. Like I wasn't into racing, but a couple of my friends really liked Formula One. Mm -hmm. So I tried to make myself like Formula One by watching the Netflix documentary. And now I kind of like Formula One, but you can't always just force yourself to like something like that. So I hate cycling. Uh, My wife has a Peloton and she loves it. And she's really tried to get me into it, but. Uh, I just can't do it. What I can do is brisk walks at lunchtime and stand at a standing desk. So I do what I can um, and everybody can kind of find that. For some people that might be tennis, for some people that might be walking a frisbee golf course, there's an infinite number of permutations. Yeah. I'm obviously impartial and biased towards resistance
0: training just because of the obvious benefits it has for, you know increasing muscularity and and how that can positively affect your blood sugar regulation, how that can help stave off osteopenia and sarcopenia. And, you know, as somebody who's quite zealous in my desire to share that with people, I've had to kind of find ways to say, Hey, you know, it does not have to be CrossFit. It does not have to be bodybuilding. It does not have to be powerlifting. There are so many ways to engage with resistance-based exercise. Let's just find something that you don't hate. And I, I'm, I have found over the years that, you know, it's not impossible to find something in that particular modality that people will tolerate. Oftentimes it's, it's, you know, low on the quote unquote ladder, so to speak, in terms of like intensity and depth. But even if it's just going to the gym and plugging into a machine for the lower body and a machine for the upper body and doing three sets of 10, and then walking while you watch your favorite show on Netflix, on your phone for 20 minutes. The payoff relative to or compared to doing nothing is just it It makes you uh, see just how important it is to meet people where they're at, because a little bit can go such a long way. And, and I knew that we would spend a lot of time on diet and exercise, but it's really the other pillars of health here that I don't talk so much about with my clients that I do, but it's, it's limited because, of course, my specialty is in nutrition and exercise. But when it comes to sunlight, stress, sleep, spiritual and social health, let, let's start with sunlight. What are the primary, let's start with perhaps downsides or what are the primary complications you see working with a population, uh, that, let's be honest, uh, does not get outside probably as much as they should, does not get sun exposure, or even just exposure to nature. How, how does this negatively affect our health?
1: Yeah. It does in multiple ways. One of the main ways that people are fairly familiar with is called the circadian rhythm. So that your body has a circadian rhythm for many hormones, not just melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. But if you get outside, especially early in the morning, it helps shut off that secretion of melatonin from a gland called the pineal gland, which is along the optic nerve. That's why it gets the light signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Fun fact: The ancient Egyptians actually thought the pineal gland was magical and regulated everything. Maybe yeah, they. It does.
0: I, I I did recall learning this because they had uh, uh, quite a fascination with removing the brain uh, post mortem, and I, I remember thinking they they believed it was like a third eye of sorts or a, a entryway to, you know, uh, uh, different realities. They, they they really chalked the pineal gland up to being quite special, and they they weren't too too far off. It clearly regulates a lot.
1: Yeah, it it is certainly important, much more important than just for secreting melatonin or not secreting melatonin. But uh, other hormones like cortisol, um, an adrenal hormone that's, uh, that regulates stress and also um, inflammation, actually, that also has a circadian rhythm kind of opposite of melatonin. And then testosterone and growth hormone um, are also part of the circadian rhythm. So regulating that is particularly helpful with the use of sunlight. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, humans are not, uh, we have um, not had selection to have optimal health outcomes being indoors all the time. So it's very natural to have both um, the sunlight uh, It encompasses heat exposure, cold exposure, basically being in the elements. Gotcha. So basically what I'm hearing
0: is, uh, you know, our circadian rhythm is integral for hormonal health for feeling good, feeling energized and sun exposure is probably the best way for us to quickly and routinely uh, uh, get our circadian rhythm where we want it. And so you're saying morning sunlight, uh, is particularly important. I know Andrew Huberman's big on, uh, retinal light exposure, um, so is that something you also recommend getting outside and, and, and not looking directly into the sun, but letting the sun hit your face, maybe even walking in the morning um, to get that sun exposure?
1: Definitely so. Uh, good rule of thumb, 10 minutes on a normal day. If it's really cloudy, maybe a few extra minutes. Um, in addition to that, there can be some benefit of red light exposure to the mitochondria in your retina. I think it's 670 nanometers.
0: Okay. And, and this would be like red light therapy, like the, the Juve and and the, a lot of retail models.
1: Yep. Okay. I, theoretically, I would think a, a $3, 670 nanometer flashlight would do just as good. Really? Yep. Yeah. I think it's 30 to 60 seconds. But it has to be red uh, optically, like you have to see the light as red, correct? There is something special about the 670 nanometer frequency that, um, helps improve mitochondrial function. Fascinating.
0: And so, and so with sun exposure, there's, there's two things that we talk about a lot in the health and fitness space. One of which is vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency, which is quite common. We, we actually discussed, lab metrics and lab markers the last time we spoke and and the commonality of vitamin D deficiency. How much sun exposure does somebody need to enhance the bioavailable level of vitamin D? Um, Is that something that they can do with just sun exposure alone? And then also uh, from a safety perspective, what is the safest way to get exposure to the sun and get the right amount of sun exposure without increasing the risk of, uh, you know, skin damage or even skin-specific forms of cancer.
1: Yeah. So uh, on a if you're outside for a full day, in a relatively strong sunlight, you can get forty or fifty thousand units of vitamin D. Okay. Which
0: so that's like t- that's like ten. No, that's like five to ten x what you'll find in the average supplement capsule.
1: Yeah. So that is a ton of vitamin D. However, um, even if your dermatotype is a uh, light or pale skin dermatotype, which theoretically would absorb vitamin D better, then uh, some people just don't absorb vitamin D well.
0: Yeah, I've heard that people who have particularly dark skin um, who live in Scandinavia or areas where sun exposure is very low, are substantially more likely to suffer from depression because they're not able to get adequate amounts of vitamin D due to high amounts of melanin, which repels sunlight for evolutionary reasons and two, low sun exposure. So they're almost chronically deficient.
1: Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a good way to look at it. The interesting correlation between, uh, melanin and melanocyte stimulating hormone, which is stimulated during sun exposure. And there's uh, peptides, um, there, there's actually four different peptides. I call them melanotan one, two, three, and four, but three is used for hypoactive sexual disorder in females. And it's also used for obesity. And it's also used for what's called lipodystrophy, which is abnormal body fat distribution in the abdomen. Hmm. So it's interesting that this hormone that's naturally stimulated by sun exposure treats all those different things. Wow. And then if you have a deficiency in one of the um, melanocyte stimulating hormone receptors, hundred percent of those individuals have severe morbid obesity, which you treat with um, a different melanocyte stimulating hormone. As far as the question earlier about getting it safely, you obviously don't want to have sunburns. Um, melanomas, which are the, in general, the most concerning skin cancer for metastasis are related mostly to genetics and very, very severe burns. Fascinating. Definitely want to prevent any severe sunburns, um, basal cell and squamous cell, which are the two kind of more normal or common, or they usually invade locally and can be very disfiguring, but they usually don't metastasize those are related to cumulative sun exposure. Gotcha. So especially for areas like your nose, which has cartilage or your ears, I definitely recommend sunscreen and also trying to avoid sun exposure to the face in general. Because if you think about it, if we have to, if your doctor has to cut out a hunk of your skin or your tissue, you certainly don't want that to be in this area.
0: Yeah, and, and to, to hit on sunscreens, I, I go back and forth. Uh, you know, I'm like so many people, I'm very much prone to sensationalism at times. And there's been such a huge push from the naturalistic community that's very anti-sunscreen because of some of the parabens and polymers and, and ingredients in sunscreens. And I even remember growing up, my dad had to be very careful with the sunscreens he selected because he would get rashes if they contained certain chemicals, um, do you have a, a preferred sunscreen i know i know you're a parent so you're applying sunscreen not just to yourself but probably to your kids so
1: yeah is there a, a brand,
0: is there a brand is there something you look for in a sunscreen or do you think a lot of that is uh maybe perhaps overblown and not worth concerning oneself with and, and that to uh, avoid sunscreen use in the name of avoiding exposure to chemicals is a uh you know stepping over dollars to pick up nickels kind of thing
1: yeah um I actually do use a different sunscreen for my children. It's zinc oxide based. Okay. It's actually, it's called a barrier sunscreen. Okay. It, it also happens to be reef safe. I'm a little bit of kind of like a, a tree hugger. And an. I'm, I'm,
0: I'm with you there, man. I'm with you there so, all day.
1: Yeah. Um, so if you're at the beach, then I certainly use those because I figure why not? And zinc oxide is um, not significantly more expensive. And I don't mind um, looking kind of silly with a barrier sunscreen. You don't want it to rub in 100% of the way. You can rub it in a little bit, but you want a little bit of it to kind of like the film to be visible. Um, But that is what I like to use for my kids, um, to be safe, to avoid all those confounding variables and potential endocrine disruptors. Gotcha. Perfect. So
0: so let's move from sunlight now into stress. Everything that's left starts with an S. Stress, sleep, spiritual, and social health. Uh, Stress as a pillar of health. I'm assuming when you say that you mean... Stress management. Obviously, exercise and hormetic things like sauna and cold exposure can be good forms of stress that benefit the body. But I'm assuming we're talking about the management of stress, right? Taking a break from this episode to tell you a little bit about my coaching company, Core Coaching Method. More specifically, our app-based training. We partnered with Train Heroic to bring app-based training to you using the best technology and best user interface possible. You can join either my home heroes team, or you can train from home with bands and dumbbells or elite physique, which is a female bodybuilding focused program where you can train at the gym with equipments designed specifically to help you develop strength as well as the glutes, hamstrings, quads, and back. I have more teams coming planned for a variety of different fitness levels. But what's cool about this is when you join these programs, you get programming that's updated every single week, the sets to do the reps to do exercise tutorials filmed by me with me and my team. So, So you'll get my exact coaching expertise as to how to perform the movement, whether you're training at home or you're training in the gym. And again, these teams are somewhat specific. So you'll find other members of those communities looking to pursue similar goals at similar fitness levels. You can chat, ask questions, upload form for form review, ask for substitutions. It's a really cool training community, and you can try it completely free For seven days, just click the link in the podcast description below. Can't wait to see you in the core coaching collective, my app based training community. Back to the show.
1: Correct. And you can think about stress in kind of two different ways. One, you can think about stress where all stress is bad, almost like pain is all pain bad. Or you can think about stress as in these are the opportunities life gives us that require a lot of effort. And how do we make that effort feel good? And to me, that's, uh, part of the like therapeutic, um, you know, part of it could be related to being a parent. Uh, That's a good example. Um, there's going to be a lot of stress that comes up and there's going to be a lot of, um, shortcomings or periods of time where you feel like you fail. And that can be very stressful or you can kind of, Make that effort feel good, almost like you can make the pain of lifting weights feel good. Gotcha.
0: So learning how to interpret stress as it comes to you uh, from a perspective and and a subjective standpoint is valuable for a patient, is what I'm hearing. And, and there's a lot of literature to support this that I'm aware of. I specifically remember. I, I don't remember what pop psychology book I, I got this from. Uh, But, you know, it was the notion that if you see stress as being exclusively negative, it has a substantially worse impact on your health than if you see stress as being uh, potentially positive, in which case it doesn't have such a negative impact on actually measurable uh, elements of health. Do you
1: tend to see that as as the case? Yeah, I I would definitely agree. Um, being able to get that dopaminergic or that dopamine response, it's almost it almost creates a positive feedback loop where it motivates you when the next scenario of equal or greater stress will come up. Gotcha.
0: And so from a from a lifestyle and stress
1: management standpoint, outside
0: of like, okay, I'm gonna do a good job of trying to frame my stress as positive, how do you work with patients to manage stress? because sometimes stress is is corrosive it's overwhelming it's debilitating and it's a lot of times beyond what we can control even when we're operating from this space of like no i'm going to frame this positively i'm i'm a resilient and adaptive human being this is not going to get me down you know even the best of us have periods and elements of our life where stress is uh, beyond what we can really handle with just changing our state of mind? How do you work with clients, patients who suffer from chronically elevated stress? And how does chronically elevated stress negatively impact our physiology?
1: There's two things to really consider uh, significantly when stress has reached to a point where it's pathologic. So perhaps there's um, some doctors might put a diagnosis to it, adjustment disorder, um, even bereavement, if you lost a lost a loved one, anxiety disorder, depression, cyclothymia, there's an infinite number of diagnoses that you can choose. But the two things to keep in mind is find out which loved ones or which family and close friends you have that might be able to go through this with you so you're not isolated. Humans are, are social creatures. Not to segue too earlier into the social pillar of health. And then the second thing is It's totally okay to feel better, and it's also okay to take a supplement or a medication, which, by the way, I see supplements and medications as the exact same. One's prescribed, one's not. They both have pharmacodynamic and pharmacokinetic effects. Sure. So I see them as the same. So it's perfectly okay to take a supplement or a medication, hopefully temporarily, just in order to feel better, because it will improve your health. Sure. Just talk to your doctor about the risks and the benefits of those.
0: What so? Let's assume that you know somebody uh, is, and I I find this to be pretty common in the proactive health community, probably very common amongst people that are listening to this podcast. I don't want a pharmaceutical intervention, I'd prefer to start with a lifestyle intervention and a supplementation form of an intervention. And I, I totally agree with you like, there's supplements you can buy over the counter that are substantially more deleterious or have a higher risk profile than many pharmaceuticals. Um, but you know, we're living through a time where there's probably never been a greater distrust of pharmaceutical companies for per- potentially good and for potentially misinformed reasons. So a lot of people would rather start with lifestyle and start with supplements. What's the number one lifestyle intervention for stress. That's at least somewhat tolerable going kind of back to how we talked about exercise. Like I don't want to do that, but I'll try this versus, uh, or, and what would you say is the number one supplement?
1: Number one lifestyle intervention. Some people might call it a mindfulness practice. Some people might call it meditation. Sure. Some people might call it uh dopamine detox or okay. dopamine reset. Okay. Um for me, kind of all three of those things are encompassed in um, I'm not a religious person, but they're encompassed in my spirituality, which again okay. I have a, another pillar for that. Yeah. But just praying. So um praying, including with my friends and family has a pretty profound effect on stress. And uh, regardless of how much of that is like, um, you know, clinically helpful or placebo, that has also been studied and can be helpful as well. So just finding um, like which of those interventions work for you, that is great lifestyle change for stress. As far as a supplement or a medication, if I had to pick one, I would pick L theanine. Mm-hmm. It has relatively few side effects. It helps improve the alpha waves in your brain, which are the calm, cool, collected waves. We know monks and monasteries have a lot of these. Um, they don't make you tired. Um, so you can also take it in the morning and the evening. There's a decent amount of L-theanine, probably 10 to 20 milligrams in teas like green teas and black teas, and of course you can take a much higher dose, like 100 or 200 milligrams in a supplement. Gotcha.
0: And uh, so this is not a—I'm—I'm not not trying to question you too deeply, but I'm a—I'm a non-religious, secular type, and yeah, I—I think you said you're not religious, but you're spiritual. Mm -hmm. And so what does praying look like for somebody? who is to to put it bluntly if i'm not praying to god what does praying look like what what does that behavior look like because i think that that's a really uh, uh it's a generally t- a beautiful notion that one might be capable of engaging in a spiritual practice without uh you know g- giving it up to a deity so to speak
1: yeah definitely Um, i would think it would be very similar to a mindfulness meditation. There's a couple different ones. Um some people do like a raisin meditation where they'll just taste raisin and then you um like think about the taste of it, you think about the um texture of it, et cetera, et cetera. Or you do a body scan where you sit down, you're in a very comfortable spot, you think about like the toenail of your big toe. And then you go from there. So uh, again, a lot of those improve the alpha waves in your brain the calm cool collected waves um i would think that it would have a very similar like neurologic or physiologic output Mm -hmm. however all that being said um just discussing the spiritual pillar of health in general all it is is maslow's hierarchy of needs so for thousands of years um for better or for worse probably for worse a lot of humans have thought about their physical needs or their mental needs for example their housing or their food but then you get to the top of the pyramid and there's this area called self-actualization. And basically mm-hmm. that's your metaphysical need. And that explains the uh, the why behind um, how people in developed countries have more stress, depression and anxiety than ever. Now, yes, these things have been prevalent throughout all of history, but you'd think with less physical needs that we'd have less, um, but there's actually more because um, it's very difficult to answer the top of that box.
0: Yeah, it's almost like if you don't have the bottom of the pyramid uh, foundationally set, that that tends to be what you you remain focused on. uh, In non-developing countries, we see this. But when every other component of the pyramid is fairly stable due to convenience, due to lifestyle, due to to where you live and what you have access to, um, you're then faced with that top portion of the pyramid, which might be the most challenging to attain um, in a society that's so... Pleasure driven, dopamine driven, and and a lot of what we're seeking uh, externally doesn't validate us metaphysically. So, I like that, and, and that crosses off both stress and spiritual. So let's let's talk about sleep. And you know, I, I see this a lot with clients who struggle with their sleep. They they do not perform well. They have a substantially harder time with their nutritional adherence, dietary adherence, and they also uh, tend to. Be what I would describe as uh, more irritable, uh, less receptive to coaching. Uh, oftentimes, they struggle not just with alertness and wakefulness, but being, you know, chronically lethargic. All, all stuff that that people know. What What are you seeing in your practice with one clients that are underslept? And then, I guess, how how many of the people that you work with are not getting adequate amounts of sleep?
1: With sleep, I consider sleep disorders, including sleep apnea, which is the most common sleep disorder. That would be uh, the number two thing behind metabolic syndrome for um, what's causing so much hormone imbalance. Wow,
0: wow. Whether it's
1: estrogen dominance or low testosterone, which matters for both females and males, of course. um, I would put sleep disturbances, including sleep apnea, as number two. So it's very common. if somebody has a sleep, uh, if, if somebody has daytime somnolence, which is being sleepy during the day or feeling like they have to nap or just um, loud snoring at night, um, I have a very, very low threshold for ordering a sleep study, which can be done at home pretty easily now. One interesting study that I saw was on young individuals with normal BMI, so they were not overweight with PTSD and they had an extremely high incidence of sleep apnea. In fact, obstructive sleep apnea. And we don't know exactly why that was. Um, This study I believe was mostly in individuals who had been in the military. So perhaps that was part of it. Um, Perhaps that was their sleep architecture as well. But um, if you're uh, feeling tired or fatigued or whatnot, then at least thinking about Getting some sort of uh, objective, or maybe even subjective data about what is happening during your sleep is very important. There's a couple other things that sleep does um, during REM sleep, which is your rapid eye movement sleep when you dream. That's particularly helpful for your mitochondria, and that's your best anti-aging. So everybody is always talking about anti-aging interventions. Sure. My two strongest interventions were REM sleep and then zone two cardio. Gotcha.
0: So, so two things that I think. Uh, a lot of people engage with uh, specifically and this we might touch on this when we get to the social element that can affect sleep are alcohol and cannabis and I don't drink, but I do use cannabis, and I've been uh, essentially not using cannabis for about the last two weeks um and I've been using it at a pretty chronic clip of i'm being completely transparent and i think it, some of that was just uh compulsive some of that was just uh, to detach and disconnect and and some of it uh who knows but i have noticed more deep and more uh let's call them vivid dreams which i do think are often associated with rem sleep and i've heard you touch on cannabis consumption and sleep uh, so can we talk a little bit about how cannabis affects sleep and how alcohol affects sleep? Because I do think that those two things are probably the most common, uh, let's let's call them their drugs. There's the most commonly used drugs, particularly in the evening. Um, and I think many people use them to go to sleep or help them sleep, but do these things actually do that?
1: Alcohol, I suppose, can help you fall asleep. So it can help with like the the latency of sleep, but it causes very poor quality sleep, both deep and REM. So um, alcohol, never worth it as a sleep supplement. In general, you want to have alcohol mostly out of the system before you sleep, which socially can be difficult given the times of day that people tend to drink. So it's kind of unfortunate. Cannabis has a couple interesting interactions with sleep. The endocannabinoid system can, of course, help with sleep. And if you look at what um, naturally, I guess, activates the endocannabinoid system, um, sometimes things like exercise can actually help. So some people feel really, really tired after exercising, but a lot of people know that um, if you exercise too late in the evening, that can also affect sleep. Not that that's the only effect that exercise has, of course it will shift your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems and all sorts of other things as well and your metabolism. Um, But one other effect that high doses of cannabis can have, particularly smoked cannabis, is that it can increase your prolactin, which can kind of decrease your dopaminergic tone. Dopamine and acetylcholine are related to good REM sleep. So occasionally people take supplements or even medications to help with REM sleep. A complete deficiency of dopamine first leads to a REM sleep disorder. Mm. For example, uh, really, really restless legs or just horrible REM sleep. And then it leads to Parkinson's. My dad actually has Parkinson's disease. And previous to
0: developing Parkinson's disease, which he developed at a very early age, I would say I was about 12 years old when my dad developed Parkinson's. So he was in his late, I would say early 50s, early 50s. Which is pretty young diagnosis, but for uh, much of my life as a as a youth, I recall my dad being up very early, not sleeping all that much, and maybe not tapping too much into to REM sleep. So that's actually a connection I've never made until just now.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, in hindsight, often uh, you do see that is that there's pretty significant REM sleep disorders even. Uh, like kicking and screaming, kind of like borderline, uh, the opposite of sleep paralysis is what it is. Sleep paralysis is like when you're kind of awake, but you can't move. So um, it's kind of the opposite of that. And then the the area of the basal ganglia called the substantia nigra mm-hmm. helps synthesize the dopamine. And I, I don't believe you actually develop Parkinson's until there's like less than 10% or less than 5% of function. So wow. it's a very, very low function before a diagnosable Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's disease. But um, certainly, that's part of the importance of dopamine for quality of sleep. However, that being said, if there's an individual that has a very, very low prolactin, then theoretically, that can affect the latency of sleep. A couple things that people know increase prolactin acutely is a seizure. So during that post-ictal state, when people are kind of confused or sleepy after the seizure, they have very high prolactins. That's also partly just due to the tonic, clonic nature of a seizure. So not all seizures do that. But another thing is orgasm and ejaculation. So after an orgasm, um, uh, people are kind of familiar with that tired feeling. That refractory Uh, period. Correct. So prolactin is also high during that time. And that can certainly help aid with people going to sleep. And perhaps that is one of the effects that cannabis might have. We could get into like THC to CBD ratios and all sorts of things, but um, that's a good rule of thumb.
0: Yeah. And so and and with regards to alcohol, I, I've had it described to me as uh, it's more of a sedative in that it has a, a, a sedative effect that even though you might drink so much alcohol that you black out for hours or you drink uh, a large amount of alcohol and become quite sleepy, That the quality of sleep after even modest amounts of alcohol consumption is uh, impacted pretty directly. Is that relatively on
1: track? Yes. And I would actually consider that true for almost all GABA agonists, including benzos like Xanax or Clonopin, or even non-benzos like Ambien or Lunesta.
0: Okay. And so for folks who want to get high quality sleep, because this is something that I'm very focused on, I want to make sure that I get enough sleep and I want to get sleep of the highest quality. And uh, we talked a little bit about Parkinson's, but one of the most emerging and concerning, um, you know, let's call it medical or neurophysiological findings we're seeing right now is low sleep correlated with development of cognitive specific decline, whether that be dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, there's a cleansing effect of, the, of if, if you will, when you sleep, we knock a lot of the adenosine out of the brain. We, we kind of clean it up. So you know you're taking good care of your brain while you're sleeping. and And for people who are listening, like you think about how you take care of your body with exercise, you take care of your body and organs with good food choices, you really do a good job of taking care of your brain with all three, the right food, mm-hmm. the right exercise, but probably none more so than the right amount of sleep. And so just like I asked you with stress, a lifestyle intervention and a supplementation-based intervention for people who are like, I am committed to getting more sleep. What's something I can either add or remove from my lifestyle? What's something I can start supplementing with that might help?
1: Yeah. For the lifestyle intervention, I will go with And hopefully this doesn't out me as like too naturalist or whatnot, but I'll go with the 10, 3, 2, 1, 0 rule that I actually got from Ben Greenfield.
0: Okay. I've never Um, heard of this.
1: My fellow homeschooled Ben Greenfield, but um, just like me. But anyway, it's uh, within 10 hours, no caffeine. Okay. That depends on how fast you metabolize caffeine. I love that. 10 hours, caffeine, three hours and two hours, no exercise or eating big meals. One hour, no white or blue light. So, if you wear blue blocking glasses, just the last hour of night, but even then it's probably not worth it compared to everything else, and then um, zero snooze in the morning I love that yeah. I love
0: that that's one we're going to have to 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 carve out and use it as a a short form piece of content i, I the reason that I, I do all of those in some capacity without knowing that rule, specifically the caffeine one. That's one that I've been doing for years. Once I learned just how long caffeine stays in your system. Um, but I like the, you know, t- tying things to a either acronym or a numerical cadence like that just tends to make it stick. So 10 hours before bed, cut the caffeine, three hours before bed, three to two hours before bed, limit rigorous exercise. And did you say Food. Large meals, large meals, and then one hour before cut the screens. Yep. And then from a supplementation standpoint, and we don't have to select one here because I, I know there are several, um, and I, I will sometimes dabble with several if I feel like I need to use a supplemental sleep enhancer. Thankfully I don't, but a lot of people would love to have something in their corner to help them sleep better. Uh, what are the, the most evidence-based supplements for those looking to improve their
1: sleep? My go-to is what I also now call the Huberman protocol. Okay. He recommends this trifecta relatively frequently, and it's L-theanine, which we actually mentioned earlier. Yes. um, For alpha waves, calm, cool, collected. Um, Also, a magnesium form that crosses the blood-brain barrier. Those are like magnesium glycinate or threonate. Okay. In addition, apigenin.
0: That's one that I'm more familiar with now, but I'm not actually familiar with it. Uh, deeply enough to even tell you what it is. I, I know the supplement name. What, what's apigenin?
1: Apigenin does a couple different things. It's considered an adaptogen. Okay. However, um, my favorite forms of apigenin are apigenin. I think it's apigenin 7 glycoside, apigenin 6 glycoside. Okay. They're also known as vitexin or isovitexin. And two of the brands are cognitavin and dopamine. And okay. these affect an enzyme called monoamine oxidase in the brain. They also help with, um, uh, potentially as like an antioxidant, but on this monoamine oxidase enzyme, it's a precursor for dopamine and actually also serotonin. So it will help with, uh, dopamine synthesis and dopamine during REM sleep. Gotcha. Some people actually also use it for <clears throat> nicotine cessation or, uh, food addiction, for example, being hungry at night. Gotcha.
0: And so that, that leaves just one pillar left. And, and this might be the most esoteric of them all, which is social. And I think with social health, uh, you know, so much of our social health or social behaviors are actually unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of what people do socially uh, isn't social at all. <laughs> you know, if you think about social media and how negatively that can impact our health mentally, our, our stress, um, a lot of our social events. Uh, are almost, uh, you know, married to over-consuming food, over-consuming alcohol, not getting adequate sleep, Uh, you know, so so much of what we do socially kind of works to, I don't want to say undermine these other pillars. But, you know, there are a lot of behaviors that exist within our social health that are unhealthy. But there's also a lot of components of our social health that are extremely important. And really tie everything together. And going back to the top of that pyramid, good luck getting that thing filled if you are not getting the social connection that you need. And so, focusing just on the good components of social health, you know, what what are you really looking for with patients? If somebody comes to you who's uh, struggling with either you know depression, uh, elevated stress, even more, like, let's call it. Uh, primary physiological issues like insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, obesity. You know, what are the, the best social interventions, social behaviors, things people can do to live not just fulfilled lives, but also healthy lives?
1: When a large change is made, um, let's call it like uh, a new habit is formed through, um, There's there's certain strategies that work best to form habits. And one of those is going through it with your family or your friends or your roommate or whatnot. People that are particularly close to you and that are around you on, if not a daily basis, multiple times per week, um, hopefully in person. So uh, as we talk to each other through a screen, um, it is convenient and it allows interactions that would not be possible otherwise, but uh, it is not ideal, especially if that's almost all of your social interaction sure so my wife sometimes jokes that the least healthy um one in the relationship always like wins so if there's two different people and you're kind of like going back and forth between a choice that might be slightly more healthy or slightly less healthy then a lot of times you go with a slightly less healthy one doesn't mean that 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 you should never make that choice sure the law of diminishing returns applies so if you're looking for the 80 20 rule or the pareto principle 80% of the time, or maybe 90% of the time, make the choice that is healthier if you make that more frequently. And then 10 to 20% of the time, make the other choice. I love it, man. So to to kind of succinctly put things together, from a
0: a diet and nutrition standpoint, we're looking at optimizing for nutrient-dense foods, not necessarily energy-dense foods. We want to be mindful of protein intake, probably focus on eating a lot of plants minimally processed foods, exercise, we're looking for something that's, uh, I believe you said, and I don't want to butcher this, but it is a movement practice or a movement pastime that can last a lifetime. So just find something you like and, and do that. And I've found as a trainer, a lot of times what you start with evolves and expands to include a lot more. You just have to get in there and get going. From a stress standpoint and and also from a social standpoint, uh, we're looking at at managing other pillars like sleep, getting that face-to-face human connection, uh, how we perceive things subjectively is really big. Sleep, I'm sure we're looking for seven to nine hours. We want the deepest, most restful sleep that we can get. And then that last pillar, which is that spiritual pillar and working on the metaphysical and kind of the top of that, that hierarchy. So, you know, having circled the wagons there, is there anything else that really stands out to you as health promoting, longevity promoting? What what would you leave the audience with before I, I let you loose to get back
1: to your patients? A couple other takeaways, and hopefully this is seen as glass quarter full. I always say some people are glass half full, some people are glass half empty, but I'm glass quarter full is uh, even if you don't feel like you would like a gym in most decent sized cities, almost everybody can find a gym where there's something that they like doing. Mm -hmm. So like that movement pastime or whatnot, usually you can incorporate the social pillar into that somewhere where you fit in. There's a place for, I think there's a place for a hundred percent of people. Yeah. I love that. It doesn't necessarily have to be at home. Um, As far as the, Dietary recommendations and such, yes, count calories. Um, pr- probably not the r- whole entire rest of your life. That would be a lot of wasted time. But yes, um, during optimization, count calories, but also incorporate other interventions as well. Don't worry about the argument about like whether calories in, calories out is true or not. Um, just chat with your doctor and your uh, healthcare team about the multiple different variations that can help for you. And then lastly, um, partly just because I'm a medical doctor, remember that medications and supplements are just tools. And lifestyle interventions is like when you get caught in quicksand, you're trying to dig out. That's the actual doing lifestyle interventions. The medications and supplements are just a shovel to help you do so if you need one.
0: I love that man. Well, uh, Doc, wh- where can they find your content? I, I'm a big fan of your podcast. I know that now you've you've got a phenomenally uh, a brand new clinic. I'm looking at the recording studio inside the clinic, so this is a clinic slash content uh, creation space. So lots of ways for them to keep up with
1: you. Um, tell them where they can find you. My main hub is on Instagram, Kyle Gillette MD. And we are Gillette Health on all other platforms. And I believe it's the Gillette Health Podcast, Spotify, uh, Apple
0: Podcasts, YouTube, etc. Awesome, man. Well, Well, Doc, thanks so much for your time. And hopefully we can do a third one in 6 to 12 months as we continue to help people live healthier lives. I wish you all the
1: best. Thank you. My pleasure.